I want to read to you a psalm, a psalm that is one of the most quoted in the New Testament. And if you have your Bibles, it's Psalm 2, reading from verse 1. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples on earth plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed Anointed simply means Messiah in, or in Hebrew. It means Christ in Greek. When we say Jesus Christ, we're actually saying Jesus Messiah. Here is a picture of nations and kings actually conspiring against God's way and God's Messiah and God's purposes. Let me take you now to the New Testament. And it's a Luke's Gospel. Chapter 12, and uh, beginning at verse uh, 51. Jesus says, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, I came to bring division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three, they will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. That one doesn't surprise me. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. Southern Hemisphere, it's a north wind for us. He said, and you get it right. But hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? Well, I've had a bit of a bad week. I almost in a disembodied form, watched myself doing an ABC radio interview and hearing myself say the words, congratulations, Eddie Maguire in Collingwood. <laughs> I bleed red and black. Everyone in my family is a bomber. I was congratulating Eddie Maguire and Collingwood. Why? Because they have decided to get rid of their pokies. They've decided it's a shabby business. The pokies are built for addiction. They're predatory machines and they're getting out. In a later radio interview, my disloyalty was even worse. There I was criticising Essendon. <laughs> my team, my team for not getting rid of their pokies, trying to do another 20-year licence and saying I'm ashamed. This is really troubling for my set of loyalties. I'm in great set of pain about this. I remember when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister, I took him to the football and afterwards Kevin Rudd said to me, Tim, why is it that everybody in Melbourne hates Collingwood? I said, Kevin, I don't know. All I know is I hate Collingwood. <laughs> There's something very irrational about tribalism, isn't it? It claims you, your loyalties are strong, your emotions are strong, but you can't quite explain it. 
There's no particular rational reason. This week, President, ex-President Obama was giving a speech in South Africa. It's the 100th anniversary of Nelson Mandela's birth. He said, we're in strange and uncertain times. There's a politics of fear, resentment, retrenchment. He added, I'm not being alarmist, I'm simply stating the facts, look around. He didn't mention Donald Trump's name. But he said, we have to keep alive the ideas that Mandela worked for. Democracy, diversity and tolerance. He said, in these strange and uncertain times, each day's news cycle is bringing more head-spinning and disturbing headlines. He called out the politicians pursuing politics of fear, resentment, saying they are on the move at a pace unimaginable just a few years ago. He attacked strongman politics, those in power seeking to undermine every institution that gives democracy meaning. We are living in times where we are retribalizing. We are turning inwards. We are saying, I am just going to look after my type. I'm indifferent to others. Well, when Jesus said he's going to divide family against family, this isn't, uh, this isn't resonating with the Prince of Peace. Any of us who have pain and splits in our families know how painful it is, don't we? For years I ran Urban Seed and we put on a, Christ, a Christmas lunch. We put it on because the pain at Christmas for people knowing what they're missing out on when they don't have family is really awful. To give them a sense of family is so important and hope. What's Jesus doing dividing families and saying you can, you can understand the weather but you can't discern the times? You don't interpret What's going on? What's he doing? Well, I don't think Jesus was saying, as we often in church interpret it, well, someone got saved and other members of their family aren't saved and then they're hostile and there's religious persecution. I don't think he was saying that. I think Jesus was saying, because I am God's Messiah, I am Israel's Messiah, this reign of God has begun Family members are going to choose different loyalties. Loyalty to the reign of God, loyalty to nationalism and tribalism and exclusion and hate. And people, because of their different loyalties, are going to clash. The sort of loyalty clash I found in myself this week, praising Eddie Maguire. It was sort of quite a shock to hear those words come out of my mouth. You see... Jesus was saying the very ones who can read the weather can't interpret the scriptures. They know the scriptures. They say we've studied them. But here is Israel's Messiah standing in front of them. And they are rejecting him. These people who could read the scriptures knew that from Abraham's seed all nations would be blessed. And Israel was the chosen instrument to be the rescue project of God from evil, evil that began in the Garden of Eden. 
And they were to be different, not serve false gods, to care for the widow, the stranger. We'd call that the refugee, the orphan. And yet what had happened was the rescue project had got into trouble. They had served other gods. They had gone into exile. They didn't care for the widow and the orphan and the stranger. And the rescue project had had a temporary rescue. They came out of exile in Babylon. They went back and they built the temple, the temple that Jesus would go up to. But it didn't feel like they had ended exile. It still felt awful, though they had a temple. The temple is where heaven and earth meets. The temple is where God resides. So why does it feel awful? It feels awful because the Romans are occupying and they're having to pay their taxes to them. It feels awful because it feels like exile and they're going, our Messiah, he will rally us, he will be a military leader, he will overthrow the Romans. You, Jesus... What do you do? You say, love your enemies, the Romans. Even I have trouble with Jesus saying that. If only Jesus had been a bit more practical. If Jesus had said, avoid your enemies, that's pretty good wisdom, isn't it? If he'd even gone a bit further and said, all right, all right, try and tolerate your enemies. Okay, Jesus. I'll... But he said, love your enemies. I don't know about you, but I really find that completely counterintuitive. I can only believe that this reign of God in the Messiah meant Jesus was saying, even your enemy carries the image of God. And you can't do violence to that image of God. You can't destroy and, and hate even your enemy carries the image of God. This is a very different reign. Now, it was a reign that was going to divide families in loyalties profoundly because on the coins from the Roman emperor and the billboards as they were in those days, it was announced the good news of Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. The good news is Caesar Augustus is the son of God. That's what was on the coins. Jesus comes along and is proclaimed as the good news that Jesus is the Son of God. Which loyalty are you going to have? What rule? The Romans ruled by force and violence and forced tax collections and occupation. And that's why they felt so humiliated. Even though they're in the temple, they're still in exile. Jesus rules by nonviolence and forgiveness and grace and love. Which one are you going to be loyal to? This is going to divide families. This still divides families. Do you believe in violence or do you believe in nonviolence? Do you believe in forgiveness or hating your enemies? This still profoundly divides us of what is natural and right to do. Well, in Jesus, Abraham's promise, or the promise to Abraham, all nations would be blessed. His Messiahship, he was Israel's Messiah. He was now the rescue project. He was now 
saying in my own body it's the temple. We don't look to the temple, it's going to be destroyed. The military faction were called the zealots in those days. Those Jewish zealots rose up to fight the Romans and the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Not a stone on stone. Well, there's a few. If you go to Jerusalem, anyone been to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall? That's all that's left. Everything else gone. As the zealots tried to bring in a Messiah who would overcome their humiliation, who hated the idea that Rome is great, Rome is dominant. This would divide families in loyalties. You know, the Greek word for faith is the word pistis. That Greek word is better translated as loyalty rather than faith. Who are you loyal to? The reign of God and his nonviolence and love and inclusion or the reign of those nationalistic leaders who'll use the sword and the weapon. It's very important for us as Christians to think this out because the world is retribalizing. Part of this is what we call nationalism. Nationalism is pretty competitive. Think of the World Cup and soccer. Now, I cheered for the Socceroos, but if you wanted to see nationalism on, on show, it was the World Cup. And I must admit I felt good about little Croatia with four million people getting to the final. I wish it was the Socceroos, but the flags, the anthems, the flares, the painted faces, nationalism is competitive. Nationalism is about our nation and its victories or our nation and its defeats, our nation and its humiliation. Nationalism is competitive and strong. Nationalism is different to patriotism. Patriotism is when you have a devotion to a particular place, to a particular way of life. But a patriot isn't wanting to force that on others, isn't wanting to be competitive and say we're the strongest, we're the greatest. I cheer for the Socceroos. I even cheer when Australia in the Commonwealth Games wins a thousand gold medals because we thrash Fiji and Tonga and Cook Islands. <laughs> There's something about, well, it's, but I don't want to invade Fiji and the Cook Islands. I don't want to manipulate them. I just have a love as a patriot of Australia. What's happening in the retribalizing in our world is this thing called nationalism. Let's make America great. Let's make Mother Russia great. There was a bromance as Putin and Trump stood and admired each other. It disturbed me. As far as we know, there was no mention of MH17. 300 people who lost their lives, 38 Australians shot out of the sky with Russian weapons on Russian command. There's no mention, as far as we know, of Novichok, that poison that's killed a British woman. This nationalism troubles me with tribal leaders. I have met President Putin. I spent an hour, it was almost an hour and a half, in his dash hour. I was part of the civil society at the G20 in St. Petersburg. 
I talked to him about Syria, about why he was closing down Russian charities that spoke up for human rights, for journalists in prison, shut, bang. He was interested that I was a reverend. And he asked me about that, saying, I'm telling young Russians to go back to church. At first I thought, oh, that's good. Then my mind's spinning and I remembered he's given millions of rubles to the Russian church and the Russian leader of the church, the patriarch, returns the favour. He says, Putin is God's man for Russia. He is God's man. I realised as I was listening to Putin, the Russian church was just a department of the state, just a cheerleader for Russian nationalism. I challenged Putin. You might have heard of Pussy Riot. They were protesting the abuses. They sang in St. Saviour's Moscow. It was sacrilegious. It was blasphemous. Putin sent them to Siberia because the church was outrageous. I said, why send them to Siberia, President Putin? Yeah, it was blasphemous, but surely a church would say, we believe in forgiveness. A look of Utter incomprehensibility came over Putin's face. He said to me, why would a church ever say that? <laughs> now, you see this contest of loyalties. Who are you loyal to? The message of forgiveness and the reign of God that's begun? Or the message of revenge? Who are you loyal to? This division of fa between families is even dividing Christians. This is what terribly saddens me. I have American Christian friends. They can't even get together with their family at Thanksgiving now. They're so divided over Donald Trump. And Christians are so divided. Next February, Billy Graham's son Franklin Graham's doing a crusade here in Australia. I hope people get saved. Franklin Graham was at the inauguration. He's been a cheerleader for Donald Trump. He said at the inauguration, you know the inauguration which was the biggest in American history? According to Donald Trump. He said, and why are we here today? Because in this election, God turned up. I wish Franklin Graham had said, congratulations, we'll be praying for you. But you have been elected under the sovereignty of God, you will be held accountable as to Jesus and his reign. Nationalism that divides Christians is a choice of loyalties. This is very clear when you hear Trump talk about we're humiliated by Mexicans coming across the border and Chinese and our trade deficit have humiliated us. He says the whole world's laughing at us. Putin has that same sense of humiliation. Mother Russia was great. President Erdogan of Turkey has this sense of humiliation. We ran the Ottoman Empire, we Turks. We ruled and we've lost it. And he's back in power. He's virtually a dictator. President Duterte in the Philippines has it. Duterte, president in the Philippines, said last week, God is a son of a bitch. He said that. He said, the Pope is a son of a whore. He said that. He has unleashed vigilante groups to kill any suspected drug users, drug traffickers. More have died in the Philippines than under Marcos, 
over 20,000. All a neighbour has to do is got a neighbour dispute is say to the vigilante groups, I think he's trafficking drugs and innocent people are being killed. This strong men but nationalistic appeal, we're cleaning it up. Donald Trump was brilliant in the election and winning it. He picked up the pain of the middle class and the, and the working class and they are in pain in America. He got that right. Washington elite was deaf to it. He got that right. What troubles me is what he then did. He said, and I'll tell you why you're in pain. It's Mexicans. We're going to build a wall. It's Muslims. We're going to ban them. It's blacks in America. It's Chinese. We're going to start a world trade war, a global trade war. We know when you connect people's pain to a scapegoat, what happens? I was in the Hamburg and the G20 again. Trump was there, Putin, all the nationalist leaders, the strong men. And as I was listening to it, something hit me profoundly. You would never hear a German chancellor, that's their president, a German chancellor say, let's make Germany great again. Everyone who's German would know whose voice they were hearing, wouldn't they? We know what happened in 1930s when out of humiliation, Germany chose scapegoats. They were called the Jews and gypsies. Six million Jews lost their lives. This scapegoating. The reign of this Messiah is the reign of the humiliated one. He humbled himself unto death. Death on a cross. And when he died on a cross... He wasn't just saving our sins. He was saying there is one eternal, perfect, unrepeatable scapegoat. In his death, there can be no more scapegoating of others. Only one is the scapegoat. I'm reading a very interesting book at the moment. Elisa Piper, I think she's Australian. She's not Christian. She's not even really religious. She's walking the Camino Trail in Spain. Her book's called Sinning Across Spain. That got my interest. Sinning Across Spain. She decided to walk the Camino, but invited people to place on her their sins. And she would walk and atone for their sins. And thousands of people have sent them, sent her their sins. In the book, there's a woman who says, I slept with my best girlfriend, my closest girlfriend's husband. It ruined my marriage, it ruined her marriage. I want you to carry this sin. Elisa Piper says, I don't think I can do that. That's too much. And the response comes, you have to do it, you have no choice. Such is this need to feel we're forgiven. Well, Elisa Piper, you can't be the, the scapegoat. There is only one in Jesus. That's what the cross means. But it also means we will not go on scapegoating. The retribalizing going on in our world is very fast. It's even micro-tribes we know from 
Facebook, their algorithms will dry out, uh, drive stories to your account based on your prejudices, on your worldview. It's an echo chamber. They know the bubble people are living in where they just feed their hates and their angers and their resentments. And even more scary was Cambridge Analytica. Now, they're the group that actually interfered in the American elections under the under the radar, the CEO of Cambridge Analytica, who was interviewed, he didn't know he was being interviewed, it was a sting by the BBC, said, we know more about people from Facebook likes and dislikes and social media than they know about themselves and their spouses know about them. We don't worry about facts, we just make those up, he said. We will drive our stories to them based on their fears and their hopes. Firstly, to say we know more about people than they know about themselves is a claim to omnipotence, to being God, isn't it? Only God. Only God knows our deepest motivations. But here is this retribalizing in a micro sense. He said, humans are only driven by two things, either hope or fear. We drive Stories to them based on their fears. We just make up the facts or based on their hopes, what they want. This is the retribalizing that we who are Christians must discern the times, understand the times like we can. Well, we don't have to look to the sky. We've got weather apps to know how to dress. But as they failed to see the scriptures pointing to Israel's Messiah standing in front of them, well, when we discern the times, there are wonderful kingdom moments of the reign of God. The reign of God, I believe, is always internationalist. It certainly includes Australians, but it's not just about us. It's about all who are God's children. I uh, had lunch last Sunday with a friend who's a Pentecostal, not this church, another. It'll remain nameless. He's going up to film for Pentecostal churches in Thailand, uh, some of the missionary stories. And I said to him, oh, well, make sure you don't go into any caves when you're in Thailand. He looked puzzled and said, why? I said, oh, you know, the 12 boys and the soccer coach. He said, what? I said, haven't you been following? He said, no. <laughs> I said, really? <laughs> okay, let me explain it. First thing about discerning the times as Christians is we have the Bible in one hand and we have the newspaper in the other. If we are to be praying and discerning the times, we have to be plugged in. But we just don't read headlines that spin our minds. We read it in the light of Scripture and the reign of God and Jesus and our loyalty to him. Well, this was, I believe... A moment when the world came together, millions around the world were praying for those trapped. So many different countries sent help. There was this sense, can there be a miracle? And how it brought, apart from my friend who didn't watch the news, how it brought the world together. That miracle. This is what the reign of God looks like. When we actually say we are all children of God. It's of course what the story of the Good Samaritan is about. You know, he was stripped naked on the Jericho Road. That's a little clue we often overlook in the story of Jesus. That meant the 
Jewish priest and then the Jewish Levi couldn't tell if he was Jewish. I'm sure they would have stopped and helped if he was part of their tribe. They would have, of course. He's one of us, our mob. But they couldn't tell. What's the point of the story? The Samaritan couldn't tell if he was a Samaritan. The Samaritan saw a human, someone made in the image of God. Jesus is saying to his own Jewish people, Christian faith, this Messiahship rises above just our tribe. This is the reign of God that has begun. Well, this is really important because the mark of the cross is its overcome humiliation. We don't have to carry our sins ourselves. They've been forgiven. It then leads to Christians being part of a movement of humility. Now I say this word humility because you may not realise in the ancient world the seven noble traits, courage, temperance, duty, on they go, did not include humility. Nobody thought it was a good idea to be humble. (laughs) The best idea was to be great and show how great you were, maybe through courage and victory, not to be humble. No mention of humility ever in any of the plaques praising leaders and people who died. This is a Christian contribution to the culture, humility. It comes from one who humbled himself, who was God, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, was obedient even unto death. Humility is part of, you heard what I'm now doing with Micah. Micah Australia is based on do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. The mark of Christians is humility and service and love. It's not my nation's going to be great and better than others. It's Jesus is great because he accepted humiliation. He accepted humiliation so that we don't have to get the need for a head of steam and revenge because we feel humiliated. So much violence in our world comes from humiliation. It starts actually with Cain and Abel. Cain finds his offering isn't accepted. Abel, his offering is accepted, if you know the story, the Bible story. Out of humiliation, Cain kills his brother Abel. Do you know on death row in America, a psychiatrist working with those on death row says there's not one on death row who didn't murder where the primary emotion was humiliation. That sense that I've been humiliated and the rage it releases. It's why the cross is the intersection of history. Our humiliation has been dealt with by one who accepted humiliation who was the one scapegoat, who said there never needs to be another scapegoat. Well, it means for us that we have to be dual citizens. Now, in our Australian Parliament, you can't be a dual citizen and survive anymore, have you noticed? Can't have entitlement to being a Kiwi or a Canadian because we say, oh, well, then you can't be loyal to Australia. It's completely ridiculous, but that's what the Constitution says. We're having two by-elections on Saturday Oh, three, is it because of that? Well, Christians 
by definition, are dual citizens. We're citizens of heaven, loyal, pistis, loyal to the reign of God, and we're patriotic Australians. We are loyal, but not in a competitive, our nation is better, it is greater. By definition, we have an Australian passport, and this is really our other passport. When we become Australians, we go through a citizenship ceremony. As Christians, each Sunday is our citizenship ceremony, isn't it? We are reminding ourselves that our primary loyalty isn't to our tribe or our nation. It's to the Messiah, the Anointed One. Why do the nations conspire against the Anointed One? Why do they? This reign of God has begun. It is marked with humility. I find it sad that so many outside of Christianity make judgments about us. To many outside, they think we Christians are a bunch of dogmatic, non-thinking conservatives who work to a set of outdated rules, and this is even worse. And we hate Muslims, we hate gays, and we hate atheists. That's not the trait of Jesus. He was humble. He served. He loved. He said this reign and my followers will rise above nationalism, rise above tribalism. Won't be, won't be the ones if their family decides to be loyal to something else who are disloyal. Jesus is Lord. So we're not self-righteous. We're not promoting a set of rules. We are promoting inclusive love, forgiveness, acceptance and grace. We are promoting non-violence. Are we loyal to that? Henry Nouwen, who I love, wrote about often the Christian divided heart. He said, I want to love God, but also to make a career. I want to be a good Christian, but also have my successes as a teacher, preacher or speaker. I want to be a saint, but I want to enjoy the sensations of a sinner. I want to be close to Christ, but I want to be popular and liked by people. No wonder that living has become such a tiring enterprise. Well, Christian faith is hard. It is radical. It is restless. It is leading us to places we wouldn't go, rising above just the prejudices of the tribe. Nguyen was asked how we could live inside a world marked by fear, hatred and violence and not be destroyed by it. He said... By realising we live in a house of love, under the reign of God, loyal to that Messiah, we live in a house of love. As you think about your loyalties, absolutely be patriotic to Australia, but rise above. You live in this house of love. Amen.